In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church and its teaching on the Eucharist. And in particular, we look at St. Justin Martyr and a letter he wrote to the emperor in the year 155 outlining the basic points of what happens in the liturgy, and we'll see how we continue to maintain a unity with that form of the liturgy even today, some 2,000 years later. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. And we are continuing our series on the section of the Catechism of the Catholic Church that focuses on the Eucharist. This is the third part of this series, um, so if you missed the first two, um, you can go back and check them out. Uh, I think they were really good. They let me do a third one, so we'll see. Um, so where we're at today is we're starting in paragraph 1345, paragraph 1345, and we're going to go from 1345 to 55, um, and, and the format is I, I read a little bit of the Catechism, and then I comment on it, give you some insights, um, and help you understand some of what the Church is trying to teach us, uh, and, then, and then move on. So it's not just straight Catechism and then straight teaching, kind of go back and forth. So we'll start here in 1345. Um, the label here is the Liturgical Celebration of the Eucharist, the Mass of All Ages. So this is 1345 from the Catechism. As early as the second century, we have the witness of St. Justin Martyr for the basic lines of the order of the Eucharistic celebration. They have stayed the same until our own day for all the great liturgical families. St. Justin wrote to the pagan emperor Antonius, Antonius Pius around the year 155 explaining what Christians did. And what follows is a long excerpt from St. Justin Martyr. So again, to put it in context, this is an early apologist. I think we hear the word apology in English, and we think it means to say you're sorry for something, um, but the, the Greek apologia means to give an account for, give a defense of, give an explanation of. Um, and so St. Justin Martyr was explaining um, to the emperor in 155 what it is that Christians did, particularly when they gathered for the Eucharist, um, on Sundays. And listen to this quotation from St. Justin Martyr, and as I'm reading it, think about our own experience of the liturgy today, because it's exactly what the Church says, that the basic lines have stayed the same all the way down from 155 to our own day today. So on the day we call the Day of the Sun, so it would be Sunday, all who dwell in the city or country gather in the same place. The memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as much as time permits. When the reader has finished, he who presides over those gathered admonishes and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things. Then we all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves and for all others, wherever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions and faithful to the commandments so as to obtain eternal salvation." 
When the prayers are concluded, we exchange the kiss. Then someone brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together to him who presides over the brethren. He then takes them and offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, he gives thanks. Then The text notes here in Greek, Eucharistain, that we have been judged worthy of these gifts. When he has concluded the prayers and thanksgivings, all present give voice to an acclamation by saying, Amen. And he, when he who presides has given thanks, and the people have responded with their amen, those whom we call deacons give to those present the Eucharisted bread, wine and water, and take them to those who are absent. So that is an outline for the pagan emperor Antonius Pius in 155 from St. Justin Martyr of what's happening at Mass on Sundays. And one of the things that's important about that quotation is in the early period of the church, it was never officially taught, but it was commonly practiced that Christians who were initiated into the mysteries and above all into the mystery of the Eucharist. So people who had been baptized, confirmed, and received the Eucharist and and worshiped on Sundays, they did not tell people who were not other Christians, they didn't tell them about what happens at the liturgy. It was sort of a a reverential piety uh, that they didn't want to sort of spoil the secret um, or speak in a a public setting about this uh, particularly um, mysterious uh, worship that they engaged in. It was it was something that was so sacred they didn't want to just go blabbing about it, right? So other, you know, non-Christians didn't really know what took place. So it's not like today you can go to Mass and, you know, sort of sit in and see what happens. Um, it was, you know, ad- admission to the liturgy was actually very risky, so they didn't, they didn't let just anybody come to Mass. And then even if you were there and you weren't yet baptized, you had to leave during the Eucharist. So this, this letter is actually to explain and kind of you know, talk away some of the the, the talking points about uh, that non Christians would utter about the the weird things Christians would do. Right? Cannibalism was one of their charges, and there's other things. It was just like nobody knew, and so this is this is a very useful historical record for us. But it also is useful because it shows us the continuity of the way liturgy, and in particular, and in particular, the celebration of the Eucharist has been since the earliest ages of the Church. So this is. 1345 is mostly just a long quote from Justin Martyr, Um, and we'll return to that um, idea again. 1346, the next paragraph, the Church says, "...the liturgy of the Eucharist unfolds according to a fundamental structure which has been preserved throughout the centuries down to our own day. It displays two great parts that form a fundamental unity, the gathering, the liturgy of the Word, and the liturgy of the Word includes readings, homily, and general intercessions, and then the second part, the liturgy of the Eucharist, with the presentation of the bread and the wine, the consecratory thanksgiving, and remember thanksgiving means it's Eucharistine, so the the, the Eucharisting of the bread, and then communion. Note this paragraph here, the liturgy of the Word and liturgy of the Eucharist together form one single act of worship. The Eucharistic table set for us is the table both of the Word of God and of the body of the Lord. One of the things that I think is really important for us to, to, to remember as we, as we look, look at the Eucharist and the way that the Church understands, in particular, the liturgy of the Eucharist, the Mass, is how important the Word of God is to the celebration of the Eucharist. It's not 
a bonus, right? You, you, don't, you don't just go to Mass and on Sunday they just jump straight to the Eucharistic prayer, and you don't go to Mass and they just have the readings. It's, it's both of those together that are combined into one, as the Catechism says, one single act of worship. Um, and this is just a, a tip, too, if you, if you are using—if you're playing the at-home game and following along in your physical catechism, or if you're reading it in an app or something— on the, in, in the margins of, of, of the printed catechism, there's little references to other paragraphs of the catechism that, that touch on similar points. This is sort of like if you're reading a Wikipedia article and you click on the blue hyperlinks for any things that you don't understand and open up another article to read it later. So there's a reference here that I want to point out to paragraph 103, uh, which is much earlier in the catechism, and this is from the section on actually sacred scripture. So we're just, we've just read about how there is one act of worship the table of the Word of the Lord and the Lord's body, and this is what is united at the Eucharist. And that there's a reference the Church says to see, paragraph 103. And I just want to read that really quickly, and I'm not going to comment on it, but just to what is it that the Church is pointing us to? This is a, the teaching on Scripture. Listen to this, paragraph 103. For this reason, the Church has always venerated the Scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. She never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life taken from the one table of God's Word and Christ's body. So notice, notice this. When the Church is teaching in the Catechism about the Scriptures, it says we venerate the Scriptures like we venerate the Lord's body. That's a really strong statement. And when it teaches about the Eucharist, it tells us it's the one act of worship of the Word and the Word made flesh, or the body of Christ, right? And it points in both places to the other section. There is a unity here to the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist that is really, really important in the Church's theology, and that's what the Catechism is trying to point out. So in paragraph 1347, we see this. Is this not the same movement as the Paschal meal of the risen Jesus with his disciples? Walking with them, he explained the Scriptures to them. Sitting at the table, he took bread— blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Now that is a quotation from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, The Road to Emmaus. So if you really want to read the Catechism well, two things you need to do, well, three things. First, you need to take your time. You can't you probably can't read 50 pages of it at once. The second is you need to take into consideration the, the references on the side, what other paragraphs the, the Catechism might be pointing you to, and have a Bible handy because it will help you to get a deeper picture. So if you didn't recognize this, you know, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. He's talking about the, the meal of Jesus with his disciples. Uh, you look in the footnotes, number 172, and it's Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. So this is the road to Emmaus, right? On the third day after Jesus has died, the two disciples are going to Emmaus, and Jesus comes along beside them. And we mentioned this, I think, in, in the first episode, when the Eucharist can be referred to as the breaking of the bread. This is the term that is used in the early church, and it's used in Luke 24. So what happens, the disciples don't know that Jesus, uh, in fact, is Jesus. They're not so sure about the resurrection, and they're mostly downtrodden about the whole passion death, and they don't know about the resurrection yet, right? They're, they're a little not, not too sure. And Jesus is with them, walking with them, and he says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And look, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus opens the Old Testament 
and explains it to them, interprets it for them, preaches to them all of the prophecies concerning himself. Then it says they drew near to a village. He was going to go off. Jesus was going to keep walking. The apostles say, no, stay with us. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. So they recognize him in the breaking of the bread, and then he vanishes, but he's still with them, right? Because he's in the body. He's in the, the bread and wine. has become his body and blood. The catechism is pointing that out to us. Justin Martyr's outline of the Mass looks very much like the Mass on the Road to Emmaus and very much like the Mass that we get to celebrate um, each week uh, today. So there is a great unity in uh, what the theology of the, uh, or what the, the celebration, rather, of the Eucharist looks like. All right, so from this point, 1348 to the end, 1355, our section for today, what the Catechism is doing is just breaking down different components of that outline that St. Justin Martyr gave us. So the, the outline is, you know, kind of really compressed, and it goes through things really quickly, and the, the Catechism here spends a few paragraphs kind of looking piece by piece. It's trying to help us see a little bit more clearly a component of um, the, the different components of the actual celebration of the Eucharist. And the first thing is 1348. The Church says this in the Catechism, All gather together. Christians come together in one place for the Eucharistic assembly. At its head is Christ himself, the principal agent of the Eucharist. He is high priest of the new covenant. It is he himself who presides invisibly over every Eucharistic celebration. It is in representing him that the bishop or priest acting in the person of Christ the head presides over the assembly, speaks after the readings, receives the offerings, and says the Eucharistic prayer. All have their own active parts to play in the celebration, each in his own way. Readers, those who bring up the offerings, those who give communion, and the whole people whose amen manifests their participation. So the gathering together on the same day, as Justin Martyr said, those in the city, those in the country, they all come together. That unity, that calling together, is a really important part of the way that we celebrate the Eucharist. Um, it's very uncommon for people to celebrate the Eucharist in private, right? It's by nature designed to be a public and, and uh, public expression of our unity as the Church, as the body of Christ. There's also something here I think that's really important about Christ being present as the, the one celebrating. This is why the priest says, this is my body, and not Christ said it was his body, right? But this is my body. The, the priest or bishop acts in the person of Christ, the head, when celebrating the liturgy. But also, everybody else has a proper role. This is what Vatican II called active participation, and I think it's one of the most misunderstood phrases um, from the Council. Active participation doesn't mean everybody needs to have a special job to do, something visible and, you know, uh, that, that everybody will, will notice you for, for your job that you've done. But really, active participation is about being deeply engaged in the prayer of the liturgy. So you can be very actively participating, primarily in your heart, by listening attentively to the words, by, by prayerfully considering the, the readings, listening to the homily, right? responding with amen or with the other, the other responses at the Mass, and then finally, you're actually receiving the Eucharist. This is one way that we participate in the Eucharist. Now, that does not mean 
that if you're at mass, as I tend to be, with uh, five kids and they're running around and you barely know, you know, what the priest has said in his homily, that you somehow, you didn't participate. Uh, but I, I just, I want to highlight that idea of active participation doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's got up, you know, got a job in the sanctuary to do, but rather that they are giving themselves to the mystery that they're celebrating, that they're mystically being attuned to what is taking place in the Mass. All right, 1349, this is about the Liturgy of the Word, right, one of the two major function parts of the Mass. The Liturgy of the Word, the Catechism says, includes the writings of the prophets, that is, the Old Testament, and the memoirs of the apostles, their letters and the Gospels. After the homily, which is an exhortation to accept this word as what it truly is, the word of God, and to put it into practice, come the intercessions for all men, according to the apostles' words. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions. So this is St. Paul encouraging us to pray for one another. The Liturgy of the Word then includes the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then what? The homily, and I want you to, to pay attention to the way the homily is described here, because I don't know that every homily we hear fits this definition, but this is how the Church imagines it. The homily, which is an exhortation to accept this Word as what it truly is, the Word of God, so an exhortation to accept the readings we just heard as the Word of God. The homily should be primarily about the readings that we have heard, and not so much about external events or the latest uh, political thing going on, right? But rather about the readings. And for us to accept those readings as truly the inspired Word of God, and then to put it into practice. So... If you, if you want some good criteria for, for whether a homily is a good one, does it exhort us to accept the Scriptures as the Word of God, and does it call us to put them into practice? That is what paragraph 1349 of the Catechism says a homily should be, uh, a challenge for us. Okay, so following then the intercessions, we have paragraph 1350 talks about the presentation of the offerings, or the offertory. So here's what the church says. Then, sometimes in procession, the bread and wine are brought to the altar. They will be offered by the priest in the name of Christ in the Eucharistic sacrifice in which they will become his body and blood. It is the very action of Christ at the Last Supper, taking the bread and a cup. The church alone offers this pure oblation to the Creator when she offers what comes forth from his creation with thanksgiving. The presentation of the offerings at the altar takes up the gesture of Melchizedek and commits the Creator's gifts into the hands of Christ, who, in his sacrifice, brings to perfection all human attempts to offer sacrifices. And we, we noted this in a previous episode in this series, that there's this interplay between creation, bearing the fruits of creation, you know, us as creatures taking the gifts of creation and giving them back to the Creator, that there's this reciprocal gift-giving. So we we take the bread and wine, give it to the priest, he turns it into Christ's body and blood, and then gives it back to us as the Eucharist, right? And it's this ongoing process of this reciprocal gift of self uh, between us and uh, the Father, and then it is returned to us as the Eucharist. So it's beautifully described here. Uh, but there's also this mention of 
Melchizedek. If you're not familiar with who Melchizedek is, he's a, a priest in the book of Genesis who actually is a, described as, as either the prince or king of Salem, which would be Jerusalem. Um, and he's a very unique, mysterious priest. The book of Genesis says he has no genealogy. Um, the Psalms and the, the letter to the Hebrews kind of give us this notion of uh, Melchizedek as sort of an eternal figure, but, he, but for sure he has an eternal priesthood. And his priesthood is very different from the other priests in, uh, especially particularly in the, the Pentateuch, right? In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the early parts of the Old Testament, priests are identified very clearly by offering sacrifice. And the sacrifice that they offer typically is the blood and flesh of an animal, right? Lambs, goats, oxen, bulls, all sorts of things. If you look through Leviticus, there's a lot of interesting... Uh, uh, clarifications about what kinds of sacrifices need to be offered in certain situations. Uh, but it's offering animal sacrifice. Maybe a grain offering sometimes, but animal sacrifice is the main thing. But Melchizedek is identified as a priest, and he offers something very different. It's bread and wine. This is why in the uh, First Eucharistic Prayer you will hear um, the, the priests say, you know, that we ask God to accept this bread and wine as he once accepted the gift of, of his servant Abel and his sacrifice of Melchizedek, um, who offered bread and wine rather than the flesh and blood of an animal um, for his sacrifice. So the church is kind of tie, pointing us in that direction um, toward the uh, offering of Melchizedek by, by mentioning this in connection with the offertory of bread and wine. 1351. From the very beginning, Christians have brought, along with the bread and wine for the Eucharist, gifts to share with those in need. This custom of the collection, ever appropriate, is inspired by the example of Christ who became poor to make us rich. Those who are well off and who are also willing give as each chooses. What is gathered is given to him who presides to assist, uh, to assist orphans and widows, those whom illness or any other cause has deprived of resources, prisoners, immigrants, and, in a word, all who are in need. Uh, and that uh, last section there um, is, again, another quote from St. Justin Martyr. Um, so very, very important source for this section of the text. Um, and really, you know, something that we also continue to do today as Christians is to, to take up a gift in, in a collection and to give it to those um, who are in need. 1352 brings us to the anaphora. It says, the anaphora... Uh, which literally that means lifting up or raising up. Uh, it's a Greek term to lift up, to raise up, sort of like lifting up your hands, raising up your hands, lift up your hearts, right? This is what we do at this part of the Mass. Um, the, so the Catechism says, The anaphora. With the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer of thanksgiving and consecration, we come to the heart and summit of the celebration. In the preface, the Church gives thanks to the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit, for all his works, creation, redemption, and sanctification. The whole community thus joins in the unending praise that the church in heaven, the angels and all the saints, sing to the thrice holy God. So at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, you have this really clear emphasis on the Trinitarian nature of salvation, right? We give thanks to the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit for creation, redemption, and sanctification. And then we sing a song of unending praise, right? The holy, holy, holy. Again, 
three holies, right, for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian hymn of praise to the thrice holy God. All right, so that brings us to paragraph 1353, um, and this is what the Church says. In the Epiclesis, the Church asks the Father to send his Holy Spirit, or the power of his blessing, on the bread and wine, so that by his power they may become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and so that those who take part in the Eucharist may be one body and one spirit. In the institution narrative, the power of the words and the action of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit make sacramentally present under the species of bread and wine Christ's body and blood, his sacrifice offered on the cross once and for all. Again here, what you see is so clearly there's this Trinitarian focus of the liturgy, right? The Eucharist is not just about Christ's body, right? We're not just going to worship Christ. We're worshiping the Holy Trinity, right? In the power of the Holy Spirit, like we ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to turn the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood so that we can then receive it sacramentally uh, and receive the fruits of his sacrifice offered on the cross once and for all. So the epiclesis is the calling down of the Holy Spirit um, on the bread and wine. That's where if you're serving Mass in the Novus Ordo, um, the, the priest will, will put his hands together, and, and oftentimes you'll hear uh, a ringing of the bells, at least if, if the kids are paying attention to, uh, to ringing the bells. <laughs> All right, uh, now, 1354 is, uh, talks about the anamnesis. So I'll just read the paragraph here. In the anamnesis that follows, the Church calls to mind the passion, resurrection, and glorious return of Christ Jesus. She presents to the Father the offering of his Son, which reconciles us with him. And this term anamnesis, another Greek term, um, you see a lot of Greek when we talk about liturgy. I think uh, Catholics... We'll, we'll get fixated, really, you know, easily certain, certain, you know, and I'm guilty of this myself, we'll, we'll focus on the Latin. There's a lot of Latin, but when you look at the liturgy, man, it's, it's Greek all the way. So anamnesis um, is a Greek word that has to do with remembering, um, and, and actually in Platonic philosophy it has to do with Plato's theory of knowledge. So Plato believed that what we know, or that what we learn Anytime we learn something, it's it's really just we're remembering something that we already knew. Of course, he had this this idea of souls pre-existing in the world of the forms, and they glimpse and know everything, and then they come down into our bodies and they forget. So when you learn something and it like clicks for the first time, Plato would say like the reason it feels like oh yeah now that makes sense is because it already did make sense to you. You just had forgotten, right? So if you've ever remembered something that you've forgotten, then suddenly you like oh I remember that's kind of an act of anamnesis, of remembering. So in this part of the Eucharistic prayer, what the Church is helping us to do is remember in a deep and powerful way Christ's passion and his resurrection, um, and also to call to mind the coming glorious return of Christ Jesus. Uh, then it goes on to discuss the intercessions. It says, in the intercessions, the Church indicates that the Eucharist is celebrated in, commun in communion with the whole Church, in heaven and on earth, the living and the dead, and in communion with the pastors of the church, the pope, the diocesan bishop, his presbyterium, and his deacons, and all the bishops of the whole world together with their churches. So you, this is why we pray for the pope. We pray for our bishop, right? 
You ever go to a different diocese, you're like on vacation or something, and then it gets to the, the name of the bishop, and so here our bishop is Joseph Strickland, or our bishop Joseph, right? And you go somewhere else, and, and you hear the, the, the name of another bishop for the first time. It's one of the really cool reminders of like how big the church is, but also uh, how important our local bishop is to pray for him. I remember when I went to college, that was really the first time I experienced that. Then, you know, we had I actually had a Bishop Joseph in uh, when I was in high school, and then I moved, and I can't remember the name of the bishop in Tallahassee, but it was a different name, and it was really shocking. Every time I went to Mass, it was a different name than what I was used to hearing. And then, of course, I went back home, Joseph again, right? So there is, in the intercessions, a very important reminder for us that we're celebrating as a local community, as the body of Christ at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Tyler or St. Mary Magdalene in Flint or wherever, but we're also united to the whole church geographically and then also eschatologically, those living and those dead, the communion of saints, the Pope, all of this, that's what the intercessions help us to remember. Then finally we get to paragraph 1355. This is the end of our section for today. The church teaches this. In the communion... Preceded by the Lord's Prayer and the breaking of the bread, the faithful receive the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation, the body and blood of Christ who offered himself for the life of the world. Because this bread and wine have been made Eucharist, or Eucharisted, according to an ancient expression, we call this food Eucharist. And listen to this line. And no one may take part in it unless he believes that what we teach is true has received baptism for the forgiveness of sins and new birth, and lives in keeping with what Christ taught. And that, again, those, those last lines about believing what we, what we teach is true, baptism, forgiveness, and living in keeping with what Christ taught, that, again, is a quote from Justin Martyr. So we open with a quote from Justin Martyr, a very extensive one, and we come back again to Justin Martyr explaining something that needed to be explained at his time and probably still needs to be explained in our time about why the Eucharist is reserved for only those who have been initiated and are living according to the life uh, that they are called to in Christ. It is not something that can be just given to anyone because of what it is. It's Christ's body and blood, so it's very obviously very sacred. It's treated with this, this special reverence of limiting who it is we share that communion with. Because remember, again, the Eucharist, the communion, is supposed to be an expression of our unity, but that's only true when we believe what Christ teaches is true, when we have been baptized, and when we are living in accordance with it. So thank you for joining me for this uh, episode in this series, and look, I look forward to seeing you all in the, uh, the, the next ones that follow. Thanks.